You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with Dr. Joshua Hook. Dr. Hook is a psychologist and UNT professor where he teaches positive psychology, and multicultural counseling. His research interests are in the area of humility, religion and spirituality, and multicultural counseling. He is a graduate of the University of Illinois and earned his Ph.D. from Virginia Commonwealth University in the area of counseling psychology. Dr. Hook is also the author of several books, including Cultural Humility, Replanted, and Helping Groups Heal, Dr. Hook uses psychology to help people solve problems, clarify values, and live on purpose. Welcome, Dr. Hook. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Living on purpose, that's an intriguing phrase. In one of our recent podcasts, Dr. Jan Holden, who has extensively researched the area of near-death experiences, commented that one of the common features people reported when they came back from one of these experiences is that they returned with the conviction that their lives had a purpose. Some of them knew what that purpose was. Some of them felt as though they truly needed to identify what that purpose was. You say that you use psychology to help people live on purpose. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. You know, I think sometimes in, in our lives, we struggle with being, uh, living our lives basically on autopilot. Yes. And, and we get bogged down in a lot of things that aren't perhaps meaningful or really central to our purpose. Probably uh, most of the time for yeah. a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so when I think about living on purpose, I think about tying what we're doing in our everyday activities to our values or what's most important to us and really trying to spend most of our time and energy focused on that. Sometimes people don't know what their values are, and so it takes some work to figure that out. I thought it was interesting you mentioned the near-death experiences thing because I think there is something about death that brings our lives into focus a little bit more and allows extraneous or sort of distant to our purpose to kind of fade into the background. The day has a way of getting an energy all its own. And I think it can just wash over us. And by the time we know it, it's time to go to bed. Yeah. And we've just been responding and responding and responding to all of the things that come up. Yeah. Living life in a reactive way versus a proactive way. I saw a documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Are you familiar with I'm that? I'm not. No, what's it about? It's a wonderful documentary. It's about this older gentleman in Japan who makes sushi. And his whole life has been around sushi. That's what he lives for. And it's just an incredible documentary on passion. 
following your passions. And I know that a lot of us have our own aspects of our own genius. I mean, we have our own passions. We have our own little gems. Do you talk to people about that in your classes or in your counseling and figuring out what that is? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially being on a college campus, a lot of people are stressed out about, you know, what am I going to do for work? What's my major? What's my mission? What's my purpose? What's my passion? Those sorts of questions are really common. It can be difficult to figure that out. And it can cause a lot of stress and anxiety. Sometimes I try to help people get out of their heads a little bit because I think sometimes your mission or purpose isn't something you can just think about and figure out. You have to explore and experiment. And so how do you suggest people get out of their heads? Try different things. So actually get more into your bodies, volunteer somewhere, shadow someone who's doing a certain job, more trying different things out in your everyday life versus thinking about it. So that way, perhaps people might be more authentic to where their purpose is than say, gee, this is where mom and dad think I should be, or this is what my friends find fun, or whatever that is. Right, exactly. Part of it is it's not something you can just think about and figure out. You have to try on the shoe and see if it fits a little bit. Another thing I try to encourage people, there's one phrase I heard this once, find the intersection of where your heart beats and your heart breaks. And so it's kind of like, what are you interested in? Where are your skills? Where are your passions? And then what is the need in the world that you see and really kind of tugs at your heart? And so sometimes where those things intersect is where your mission or purpose is. And it's different for everyone. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that. That's really nice. I think there's an advantage, actually, to getting older in that respect. You mentioned that a lot of younger people are so concerned about their majors. I know high school kids, what college am I going to? And in college, what am I going to do? And as you get older, you realize you're never locked into anything. And your variety of interests appear, or perhaps at one point in your life, you're interested in one thing. At another point of your life, you're interested in another, and it keeps things fun. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely true. When you get older, you have a little bit more of a longer perspective and you realize that you can change and shift. You know, a lot of people change careers or change majors that can cause a lot of anxiety, but that's okay. It's okay to do something different and try different things out. I think that's a good thing. Maybe not something we should be afraid of necessarily. Getting out of our comfort zone makes life a lot more exciting and you meet different people and you find out about all kinds of things. Absolutely. Well, you kicked off this semester's Ollie Lunch and Learn series, speaking on the topic of how to live with gratitude and appreciation. Sounds like a very important topic in the field of positive psychology. What did you emphasize in that lecture? With gratitude, it's something that we all kind of think, I think everyone sort of thinks it's a good thing or, oh, I should be more grateful. But a lot of times we don't really delve into it deeper than that. So I talked a little bit about what the benefits of gratitude are for wellness, happiness, health. And then I talked a little bit about why gratitude is difficult and why we have a tendency in life to kind of narrow in on what's going wrong. And then I walked through some exercises or some different things that you can try to help be more grateful on a daily basis. I had the pleasure of attending the lecture. And you said during the talk that it was important not to embrace a Pollyanna view of, oh, I'm always going to feel grateful, everything is wonderful, that actually that can be a detriment to your true happiness. You need to recognize when things are bad, when we've had betrayals or disappointments or whatever that is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's misperception of gratitude, like, oh, we just need to look on the bright side of everything. That doesn't necessarily honor the depth of our human experience and the reality that we do have things that aren't good 
that happen to us. And we do go through really difficult times and situations. And so to not be honest about that isn't helpful, but life is a mix of good and bad. And so more of our natural tendency as human beings is to get bogged down in the negative and really focus on that predominantly, especially for people who are struggling with depression or anxiety, that negative can dominate. And so there is a sense of being balanced that is helpful. And then also, and this is really tough too, but can be helpful to look at even some things that are negative and think about maybe what are we learning from them? How are we growing if possible? Because there might be something that we can be grateful for even in difficult experiences. Yeah, it seems like that would be one of the types of things that perhaps makes us grow more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, I'm just very excited by what I hear about the field of positive psychology, because in the past, it seems as though much emphasis has been placed on the negative aspects of psychology, as important and valuable as they are. I know people have to be able to deal with depression and PTSD and all of those kinds of things that can happen that are more of a negative. But it's very interesting. It seems like many of the researchers lately have been focused on what positive psychology does for us, both not only spiritually, psychologically, but also physically. Yeah, I definitely think there's been a little bit more balancing in the field. Historically, we have focused on what is wrong with folks and how can we get people who are really struggling up to a baseline of functionality. But there, you know, there's a lot of folks, maybe they're a five out of 10, you know, but they would love to get to a six or a seven or right. an eight. And so I think a lot of the research in positive psychology thinks about that. How can you be happier? How can you be more satisfied in your relationships and different things around those? I read a book. I'm trying to think of the title of it. I think it was Telomere Effect. At any rate, it was very interesting because it talked about the way that our thoughts affect our biochemistry and our biochemistry affects the endpoints on our DNA, which affects us physically, not only how we age, how our body is and our health is. It's interesting to know that our thoughts truly do have an effect on us in so many ways. I believe one of the chapters was called, Your Cells Are Listening. <laughs> mm, interesting. Yeah. There's definitely, a, and probably more than we even know, this interplay between our mind and our body. And so that connection is incredibly strong and it goes both directions. Our thoughts can impact our biology and, and then also the other way around too. I'm sure we've all experienced when we're tired or feeling sluggish physically, that can impact our thoughts and, and make us more negative as well. It is amazing when I'm in a positive mindset, everything seems to just flow. Whereas if I'm like you're saying, not feeling really that great, I'm tired, whatever it's, oh, the traffic's not right or something happens, things just don't flow quite the same. There's this funny acronym I sometimes use called HALT, it means if, let's say you're really struggling or having a fight with your spouse or in, in a difficult struggle, check yourself. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? Either of those things pop up as something that you're dealing with. Maybe press the pause button and deal with that physical need first and then get back to it. Oh, that sounds very useful. That's a great yeah. tidbit. Speaking of great tidbits, you have a website and I am a brand new subscriber and have been so thrilled. Oh, it's thank a you. wonderful blog that you have. And I'll just mention the website is www.joshuainhook.com. I was drawn to your statement that we are at our best when we actively use our gifts, passions, and skills to positively impact the world. It's such a constructive message. This morning, you had a very interesting blog that came into my email, and you talked about road rage. Yeah. <laughs> and 
I love the fact that you said sometimes we get out on the road and it's like it's a competition, but we're not all going to the same place. We don't have to race each other. And the thing that you said that really stuck with me was to remember we're all on the same team. And I thought, what a great phrase, because that's so true in so many different aspects of life when people annoy us or we feel threatened or angry. We all are basically on the same team. It's not a competition. I found that so helpful. Yeah, thank you. You know, and a lot of times my blogs are, are something will happen in my own experience that will produce an idea. And that was one of them. I was aware of getting cut off and being so frustrated and tailgating the person for a little bit and then having to stop for a second and be like, wait, it's not a competition. We're all we're all on the same team. We're all trying to get to our destination safely. Yeah, it's funny. You can meet some people on the street or in a store and they are just the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Put those people behind a car and it's so different. It's like, we're not letting you in. Forget I that. I know. I don't know why we do that. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's funny, but it's good to be us. aware of it, right? <laughs> so do you see things like your podcast, for example, as ways in which technology can be used to develop or be more in touch with those wise parts of ourselves? Technology has changed a lot of things in our lives and how we engage with information. And so there is a sense that technology can help us be our best selves. On the other hand, it can distract us from our yes. best selves too. It's a double-edged sword. But yeah, we have so much information at our fingertips. I was just looking at a company the other day. They distill books, self-help books, into seven-minute videos that you can watch. No kidding. And yeah. Oh, I and love I that. Know, I love that because there's so many books I think, oh, I want to read that. <laughs> exactly. Um, and just don't have the time. But yeah, so things like blogs, you know, podcasts, information, books, it's all at our fingertips and we can really access world experts in whatever we want to learn, which is amazing. I mean, we live in really an incredible age. Yeah, we do. Like I say, I, I see it as going both ways. I think the seven minute video on a wonderful book is such an incredible way to be able to get in touch with a variety of ways that different people are perhaps saying the mm -hmm. same thing. At the same time, it's also another way that we kind of want to microwave heal the world or microwave heal ourselves. I see both sides of that. Yeah, you know, that's a good point because I think sometimes when we think about issues related to healing, personal growth, et cetera, we want to rush it. I want to get better now or I want to- You tell me the secret and then I'll know it and I'll do that. Exactly. And yeah. sometimes that just isn't the way growth works. I think sometimes it's a longer process. You know, that happens in counseling too. I remember even in my own personal counseling that I, when I was working with a counselor, I would sometimes get frustrated, like, oh, I'm still dealing with the same things that I've been struggling with for years. But it's a process and sometimes it takes time and yeah, and you can't necessarily rush it. I think that's another advantage of age, being able to accept some of those parts of ourselves that we just say, yep, there I am again. That's me. All right. Yeah. that's <laughs> There a, that, she is. Yeah. That's a great point. I think there's this balance that we face in life between action and acceptance. There's a sense of we want to improve. We want to get better. We want to fix different problems that we're struggling with. And not everything can be fixed. So there's this balance of what's under our control to change and then it's perhaps not and could be better off accepted and integrated into ourselves. Your research areas are really quite marvelous. Just a glance at the grants you receive 
are fascinating. One of your areas of interest is in humility. I saw that you've investigated humility in leadership. That sounds like a topic that would be a very valuable area, and that sounds like a topic that would be valuable in so many levels and areas of society. Humility in leadership is one of those where you maybe don't see a lot of it out there, and I think part of the reason is that sometimes leaders get to their positions in a way, partly even because of their lack of humility, like their intense drive, passion, vision, not listening to detractors and different things like that. So leaders often struggle a little bit with humility. There was a book that came out probably in the early 2000s called Good to Great. And it was a business book. I believe Jim Collins was the author and he investigated companies who were able to have sustained success over time. And one thing he found about these companies was that their CEOs had uh, this mix of incredible competitiveness and drive on one hand, but then humility on the other hand. They were able to listen to different folks in the organization who had different ideas than them or who were wanting to move in a different direction than they did. And so the leaders showed this kind of mix of those two things. And there was a sense with leaders where they need to have this competitiveness and drive to move forward and push their ideas ahead. But then that would almost sometimes leave a wake of relational damage as they push their ideas forward. So the humility almost balanced that out a little bit. Sometimes we call it like the social oil that allows leaders to function over the long haul in relationships with the people that they're in contact with. That's a terrific concept. I can see that as helpful to so many of us. It's so many different aspects of our lives. That's really, that's what we need, more social oil. Yeah, kind of this lubricant that allows us to, you know, deal with differences and, and move forward. And another one of your grants was Project Amazing Grace, Understanding the Nature of Human Grace, Phase 1. Did you find it challenging to research what is typically associated with an area of spirituality in a scientific academic setting? It can be a little tricky because I think in a secular university, maybe they aren't always the most affirming or feeling positively toward religion and spirituality. So sometimes it can be a difficult sell, I guess, that this is an important topic of research. I think in psychology and in the academy in general, views toward religion and spirituality have become more positive and accepting over time. I think there's an acceptance that religion and spirituality are an important aspect of many people's lives. And if we want to understand people on a deeper level, uh, we have to understand their religious and spiritual viewpoints as well. So I think the attitude toward religion and spirituality has become more positive, but it's still, some people just are don't feel positively toward religion, so it can be challenging. It seems like perhaps with the mainstream acceptance and mindfulness that is going on now, perhaps that's filtering through to a lot of the research institutes and researchers, perhaps in opening people up to that aspect. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I mean, there are some of these more secularized, like mindfulness, you know, has its roots in Buddhist tradition, but now it's become more secularized. So all people use mindfulness, not just religious folks. So there is a sense of openness, at least to some of the techniques or strategies that religious folks use to improve their happiness and well-being. So do you see that these scientific insights and spiritual wisdom truths, do you see that with this growing mainstream acceptance that perhaps they're going to emerge in more fields and education and healthcare and that kind of thing? You know, I think so. You know, I think there's a convergence 
that happens with what we find from science and then also some of these deep spiritual or philosophical truths that just ring true that people have known for centuries. So I think there is an overlap and convergence that happens. You know, one thing that I remember in my graduate school career, something I was struggling with, you know, how do I fit the different parts of my identities as a growing psychologist and then also as a religious and spiritual person. And so one thing I remember that helped me is this idea that all truth is God's truth. Uh, with that convergence, I think there is more acceptance to religion and spirituality in mainstream. Of course, for people who want that to be incorporated. At least I see it as being taken out of the cloistered monks and brought into more accessible areas. You can look up anywhere and you can see books or places to go and get an idea of that kind of style of living or perhaps some things that you can do. Do you incorporate that into the different therapy, the positive psychology types of therapy that you do? Do you have aspects of mindfulness that go in there? Yeah, absolutely. Especially for people who are struggling with anxiety, with such a fast-paced culture and environment, people often struggle to sit down, take a breath, connect on a deep level with themselves and with others. Mindfulness and then other meditation and different spiritual practices can help with that as well, fostering that deep sense of connection with the self, other people, and then also the divine, if that's an important part of a person's life. Dr. Hayslip had mentioned in a former podcast about multitasking and how that affects memory. And I see that what you're just saying too. I see that in terms of affecting our level of calm and peace and focus and determining which way we want our lives to go. There is, as we said before, with technology, there's a lot of multitasking going yeah. on. I mean, that seems to be like the way you're supposed to do things anymore because you can't get anything done. You can't get everything done at the end of the day if you don't do three things at once. So right. it's interesting. You, it's interesting you mentioned multitasking. I actually believe multitasking isn't a thing or isn't a real thing that we do. That, that's maybe a little bit of a different perspective, but I actually believe that what we're actually doing when we think we're multitasking is we're switching really quickly between different tasks and areas of focus in our attention. I always encourage people to not multitask as much as possible because when we switch our attention, it really damages our focus and productivity and effectiveness in our work and life. And also hurt our ability to, if we're out to dinner with our spouse or, or family member, hurts our ability to connect. So I always encourage people as much as possible, do one thing at a time, because if you think you're multitasking, you're really switching and you're probably not doing either of those things particularly well. You know if you're typing on your email while your spouse is talking to you that perhaps you're not sending the right message and you're not getting the information. Right. Yeah. You're not doing either of those things at your exactly. full capacity. So better to spend a minute on the email solely doing that and then focus on your spouse solely. One of the topics of your blog was, who are you? how your identity can help you change. In it, you describe how we get so bogged down with the specific tasks of what we need to do to be better people. Let's eat more vegetables. Let's exercise three times a week that we often don't stop and think, who are we and what do we want to do anyway? And I just throw out, you used an example of a pastor who was having an experience with a referee. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it was this really funny story that my pastor shared, and he, he basically was coaching basketball. He's kind of an intense guy when it comes to basketball, and he was feeling really frustrated at the referees throughout the game, and it got to the point where he got so upset that he cursed at the referee. And the referee ran over to him at that time, and he was worried he was going to get a technical foul or maybe get kicked out or something. And the person just looked him in the eyes and said, 
you're my pastor. I've always wanted to meet you. And it was just like a full stop. And all of a sudden he was confronted with the reality of his identity, that he was a pastor, he was a Christian leader. And how should that impact what he did? Based on who he was as a person, does he want to be cursing out the referee? No, he didn't. He wanted to be an example. And so it immediately stopped his behavior. Just this reminder that sometimes getting in touch with who we are and, and really our values what we think is important and what is most critical to who we are as a person can help us live our lives the way we want to. You are often requested to speak to different audiences. What is the most popular topic that you're asked to speak about? Some of them are related to some of my book, the multicultural counseling piece. My focus really there has been humility in the multicultural counseling relationship. So sometimes I'm asked to speak on cultural humility. Humility and multicultural counseling, how does that work? I found that humility is a really good guiding value or virtue when it comes to connecting with people who are different. So because humility involves acknowledging my limitations, just because I view the world in, a, in one way or have a certain perspective doesn't mean that's the right way to view the world. It's just one way to view the world and my client may view the world differently and that's okay. And then also another part of humility that I think is really important is being other-oriented versus self-centered, so really keying into my client and trying to understand their perspective and point of view when it comes to culture. A lot of times my students, and I think just people in general, multicultural issues and diversity issues can be kind of anxiety-provoking. Students can be concerned that, oh, I don't want to say anything wrong or make a mistake or I want to get it right. That's not necessarily the most helpful. More helpful is to let's engage with humility and if I say something wrong, let's talk about it and I can apologize and I don't have to think that I have it all together or have all the answers because probably I don't. I think humility can be kind of a helpful guiding principle when engaging with people who are different. A couple other topics. Sometimes I'll talk about the intersection of psychology and religion and spirituality. I have a book on small groups, so sometimes I'll be asked to speak about that. And then also I've been getting more into the adoption and foster care support world, and that's actually through my wife. She was a therapist in the foster care system, kids in the foster care system for quite a while, and so we do some of that together, helping adoptive and foster families understand what kind of support they need. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like an area where support is very necessary. They may not even realize what it is that they need until they're actually engaged in that. Yeah, absolutely. And especially sometimes we'll work with types of spiritual communities who want to help people in their community. And a lot of times churches will encourage people to adopt or get engaged with foster care, but then they don't offer a lot of help and support once families are actually doing it. And it can be really hard work. So that's really our focus is if you're going to encourage people to adopt or foster, let's come alongside families and help once they're doing it as well. Do you see looking at college age students and older adults, do you see different primary areas of difficulty or focus with those age groups, or do you find them to be pretty much the same? I would say both. I think there's some things that are just universal to our experience. You know, we all want to feel connected with others. We all want to carve out a place for ourselves and our identity. So I think some of those things are similar, but I do think that older adults and college students are at different stages in their lives. And so they're wrestling with some different things. So with college students, I think it's a lot of forming your identity. Like, who am I? What am I going to focus on? And a lot of people are struggling with dating relationships and getting figuring out how to do that. Or maybe they're starting a family and, and some of those types of challenges. Whereas sometimes with older adults, 
there may be some of those things that are still happening, but it's a lot of kind of generativity too, you know, looking back on one's life and then also some transitions as well. So maybe people are transitioning from work to retirement, for example, and kind of figuring out what is this next chapter look like or how, what do I want to do now? Whether that's a different job or a volunteer experience, but, and connecting with family is important too, but I think in a different way, you know, looking at connecting with kids and grandkids and some of those types of things. It's an interesting two-sided coin of identity, the way you're saying it. It seems like the younger people are all uh, really focused on who am I? I need to build myself up. I need to build up my identity. And as they get older, they're still looking at identity, but maybe in a sense of less, I don't need to do that. I've done that. I know I've established that. So where do I go from here? How do I lose maybe so much of my focus on me and look out more on community involvement or whatever. Yeah. And how can I give back? I think, you know, offer wisdom. And, and I think there is changes in identity. I was just having dinner with my friend the other day who he just retired. He worked as a healthcare executive for many years and he was talking about identity in a way like, I don't know what to put on my LinkedIn profile. Do I say retired executive or, and so that those are some challenges and it's exciting too. looking at next steps and getting involved more and volunteering at his church, building into younger folks. It's exciting. And and a little disruptive all in one. I, I know how he feels. I know that sometimes the term retirement has a whole connotation with it. I know my husband recently retired and we moved here to this area and we didn't want to call it our retirement phase. We wanted to call it revitalization. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> just put a different spin on it so that we're going into some other area than just sitting on the front porch. And it really, I mean, it Although really there's is, nothing wrong with that. But. It really is an opportunity. Again, we talked about before, we're so busy and racing through trying to meet our commitments. And, you know, once you have kids, you're running around dropping off people at practices and, and different things like that. So it is in a way, I think an opportunity to refocus and perhaps, you know, do something else or, or do something new. So much of what you've talked about, I see, is interrelated to much of the information that we've heard in the podcast over this and other semesters on various topics, such as the research detailing the positive effects of mindfulness on the health of our DNA and how the attitudes and inherent beliefs that we hold on aging affect our cognitive abilities as we age. Even, as I mentioned earlier, with the near-death experience interview on the value of self-esteem and self-confidence and personal growth. The fact that we have these similar topics coming up again and again, I find to be very encouraging and inspiring. Do you see these connections also? It's almost as though we're on this renaissance of understanding how we can develop ourselves and our community into a more positive aspect. I do think there's definitely a lot of convergence in the topics that you mentioned. We want to live meaningful and purposeful and fulfilling lives. We want to connect well with ourselves and with others. We want to feel like we're making a contribution. And I think a lot of the topics that you mentioned talk about how science and research is helping us understand that in a deeper way. And we've talked today too about how science helps us with that. And then also perhaps deeper truths from religion, spirituality, history. So all of that I think, work together in helping us live more meaningful lives and connect with others and ourselves in a deeper way. Do you have some resources that you'd suggest, books or any other kind of resources that you would recommend that people might check into? 
Yeah, definitely. I'll give a shameless plug for my blog so you can... I will back that up. <laughs> and in my blog, I'm really trying to... make Most of my topics are somewhat related to psychology or faith or the intersection of the two and really how research from psychology helps us live more meaningful and purposeful and happier lives. And so I'm always posting on the different things I'm learning about. In terms of books or other podcasts, one book I love is called The Traveler's Gift by Andy Andrews. It's a book where he explores life lessons based on prominent figures in history. And it's a really easy read too. So Sounds I love, fascinating. So yeah, I love that I'm one. I'm checking that one okay, out. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Hook, for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Joshua Hook. Thanks for listening.